I have your attention, please? Good evening. You're listening to Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. We thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show. Hey, y'all, it's March 2020. That means spring is just around the corner. It's another episode of Straight Talk with Dana Mark. It's six-man Dane Geronimo, and as always, from NJ to NC, I'm in the studio with my right-hand man, Mark Lee. So, Mark, tell me what's good in your neck of the woods, my brother. Well, you know, as always, we've been keeping real busy, had all kinds of things going on. We had ERUP, uh-huh. which is the Eno River, Eno River Unitarian Universalist Fellowship, along with the North Carolina Jazz um, Ensemble and some of their players. They were doing a uh, Jazz Vespers program on a Saturday. Yours truly is a fan, as you know, of movies and sports and a lot of things, but definitely in music, but definitely a fan of the movies. Not always a fan of horror and suspense, but I was a judge for the Nevermore Festival, so I did go there and check out some of the films that were selected and met some of the filmmakers. Did wind up watching a couple of films that would be considered in the more traditional horror kind of modes of, you know, monsters and blood and gore, but then there was also some suspense movies as well, and of course they touched on some very deep issues. One of the movies I saw was called Do Not Reply, which basically deals with uh, some of the ways that predators can use that wonderful thing called the computer to entice people into uh, some very uh, tragic and bad situations. So that was a real deep movie. Met the uh, filmmakers. Maybe I'll try to get them onto our podcast at some point. Also saw some other movies that uh, dealt with some issues that used horror as a theme, one was called Special Needs, and that dealt with special needs people, you know, those that are uh, considered uh, having some sort of uh, disability or um, something that puts them in that category. And in this case, the special needs person was actually using it as a bait because they were actually a vampire. So they were their, their handlers were not actually uh, letting the people that were coming to take care of them know what they were coming into. So, I mean, they were definitely tricking them and things of that nature. But it was definitely enjoyable. I saw some movies, like I said, on Friday uh, evening. Um, did the, I think that was... Uh, yeah, saw movies on Friday evening, saw movies on Saturday, went by there on Sunday, did not mm-hmm. actually go and see any movies, but talked to a couple of my uh, cohorts at the Carolina Theater and uh, saw that we had had a very successful Nevermore Festival, getting ready for a couple of other small festivals, or I should call them small, but some other festivals that deal with some other themes. I think one is called Retro Fantasma or something along that line. And then we've got our big one that is not one that we do, but the Carolina Theater puts um, provides the venue or is one of the venues for the Full Frame Festival. So that'll be coming up in the uh, not-too-distant future. I've got some friends that have served on that selection committee. So, And while I was there, I got recruited to, you know, watch some films about alternative lifestyles and things of that nature. So they've had that, that festival going on for a number of years, and they have recruited me to be the board liaison. So I'll be checking those films out and, you know, see what they're all about. So I've now done, I think, three or four films uh, festivals that I have been involved in in terms of trying to uh, pick selections. So, you know, I've done a number of music festivals and now I can add 
film festivals to my resume as well. I still want to get on the forefront committee. I've had a number of my friends, including Gerald Silver, who's been on the show, um, Stephanie McLean, who is a dear friend. She's been one of the judges and a number of other judges, but they have yet to recruit me. But I have done now never more. Of course, I've been involved in the past <laughs> in the selections of films with the Haiti Heritage Film Festival. And um, like I said, I'll be involved with, uh, I think they're calling it Out South. It used to be the, uh, have like the long one, the names of all the different titles, gay, lesbian, trans, and all of that stuff. But, you know, they try to get judges that are a mixture of the community and not necessarily just people that fall into those categories because they want to make sure that their films did all kinds of folks can be interested in looking at it and everything so I they, they recruited me to be the board liaison I said hey that'll be number three I still want to go for full frame so if any full frame people are listening know that I want to do a full frame selection show and be one of your judges and any other film festivals that you know I've got a film freeway account so if y'all got something that y'all need judging I can sit there and watch films and be a judge it can actually be sometimes fun and you get into some nice discussions about what you liked and didn't like about the films and then you know somebody makes the final decisions then you make a festival out of it but that was kind of fun doing that and, you know, Sundays have become even more difficult lately because we've got church services. And, you know, we used to just have Christ Central. And, of course, we had my friend Damien. He had, um, I think it was called Holy Tabernacle, but he's been on hiatus. But 6-8 Church with Darrell Briscoe and his wife Tracy they and some of their leadership team, they are now having service every Sunday, which means that on Sundays I get up around okay. uh Six something, get to the hay time by seven, and I don't leave till about seven or seven thirty that evening. So you know, I start off my Ooh. weekend with a long day on Sunday. So you know, my weekend begin, my week begins on Sunday with that long day. So by the time I get to measurement, you know, one of the uh, regular paying gigs and everything, that first day at measurement. I'm sitting there trying to have like a Tuesday or Wednesday moment, just trying to get myself in some balance of. Uh, clock, you know, the biological clock and all of that stuff, trying to get it in some sort of cohesion so that I can actually uh, stay awake and grade those kids the way that they need to be graded in a fair and just way. So definitely, uh, you know, it's taking a while to get adjusted to those Sunday hours, but I've, you know, I roll with it no matter what they give me. So I definitely have been rolling with it and will continue to roll with it. And, you know, on the political front, I see that we're down to six candidates. We, we, you know, Mr. Steyer has dropped out. <laughs> Mr. Uh, Mayor Pete has dropped out. So I guess we're down to the three women, which would be um, Elizabeth Warren, um, Amy, uh, and I'm always not pronouncing her name correctly, but I know it begins with a K, but she's still in there. So the lady, I believe, out of Minnesota area. And we've got um, Tulsi, the uh, one that has some, um, I believe she's got some Samoan roots out of Hawaii. Um, she's not really been polling any kind of numbers. At least the other two ladies have had, you know, maybe not quite 10%, but they've had some numbers in some of the states and have at least been in the battle. I'm not sure why Tulsi is still in the race because, like I said, I expect that she'll be. If I had to make a prediction as to who's going to drop out next, I think that she'll be the next one to drop out of the race. But that's just my prediction, and I have no uh, skin in the game or no way of actually knowing. And then, of course, we've got the front runners, which are uh, Bernie and Biden. And, of course, we've got the new player, um, Bloomberg. Um, I'll talk to some friends of mine, and you may know, because I yeah. believe this gentleman has some New York roots. So I said there's six, 
But I know when I looked at the ballot, because I did do early voting last week, um, did that with a friend and definitely got that early voting out of the way so I don't have to wait till Tuesday to be in the lines during Super Tuesdays where we've got several states voting. But, you know, a lot of the candidates that have dropped out, like Corey, were still on the list. Of course, nobody knew that Tom and Pete would have dropped out by that time, so they dropped out over the weekend. Um, they were still on the list. A lot of folks that were in those long debates when we had, you know, 20-plus 20, uh, 20 candidates were still on that right. list. But, you know, I saw Devil Patrick, and I think he's out of New York, and I don't remember Devil ever actually dropping out. So, And I know he was a late entry like Bloomberg. So I said six, but it might be seven because I'm not 100% sure if Devil ever actually dropped out. Do you know if he ever officially dropped out? I couldn't answer that question because, like I said, you know, for me, I'm not really going to start paying attention to all of that stuff until the summertime. That way, all of the all of the people that have said what they're going to do and what they can do and all of this that aren't really able to do too much of anything, they'll be gone. And we can focus on who's actually really running and who's running their mouths. So, you know, I'm I'm still waiting. waiting. And I just looked it up. I just looked it up and it did say that it was Massachusetts. I knew it was somewhere up northeast. He was Massachusetts governor and he was a brother. And it says former candidate for president. So I am correct. We are down to... Six candidates. So six candidates is what we have among our candidate wow. list unless somebody decides to pop in and add their names to the list. But right now, it looks like we've got about six candidates. And uh, like I said, a lot's going to depend on what happens on Tuesday. I know that I think Bernie's campaign is really focusing heavily on California, where he's definitely, you know, that's a liberal state. And there's something like 400 and plus delegates that come from California. So if he can do well there that will definitely solidify him as a front runner i'm pretty sure that after his south carolina victory this saturday that um biden is probably looking at north carolina georgia and some of the southeast and some of the other states that i believe are part of super tuesday as uh well so i think that that's what they're probably looking at warren is probably looking at north carolina as well trying to make at least a push here in this area and there might be some others because it's I've got to remember how many states there are on Super Tuesday, which is tomorrow. But it is a bunch of them. And I'm actually going to look this up. Uh, and I know I did actually see a little bit changing the topic away from politics just for a minute of an XFL game. And you're right. It is actually not a bad football game. I stopped into a friend's uh, bar <laughs> at a hotel that he works at and they had the game on. And I was like, you know, this is actually not too bad of a game. It was D.C. against, I do not remember who they were playing, but I know it was D.C. against somebody. And uh, it was like I said, I did not see that many minutes of the game. But from what I saw, it was not a bad contest. And, you know, it definitely, uh, I can't say that they are quite up to the capabilities of some of our NFL players, but they gave a decent game and everything. So I was actually, you know, not too appalled by the game. Pretty good football, man. And they changed a yeah. couple of rules. A few slight changes, but it's actually pretty decent. And, and you know, I'm, I'm like, it's actually good. That's good. You know. Well, coming back, and I did hear the bell ring, so we're going to get to at least one of our guests. We might have some more calling in later as well. But um, on Super Tuesday, it is Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, 
North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. So they are definitely covering a large swath and a kind of cross-the-country swath of what's going on because that's what, one, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen states are voting um, on Super Tuesday. Wow. And Elizabeth Warren, like, and I've said this before, Elizabeth Warren, I think, is in for the long haul. A friend of mine was telling me that they expected her to drop out, but through the first four 2020 presidential primary contests, Senator Elizabeth Warren has yet to win a state. In fact, she hasn't even come in second. Headed into Super Tuesday, the Massachusetts senator is even at risk of losing her home state, which she reportedly declined to call a must-win on Saturday. But according to the Warren campaign, this race isn't a matter of winning or losing states. It's about accumulating delegates. We expect Elizabeth to have a strong delegate performance on Super Tuesday and see the race narrowing considerably once all the votes are counted, her campaign manager, Robert Lau, wrote in a memo released Sunday morning. The memo was released hours before Pete uh, Buttigieg, who is currently ahead of Warren and delegates, dropped out of the race, and a day after Tom Steyer ended his own bid, according to Politico, the campaign thought at least one more person would drop out in the next seven, seven to ten days. Uh, they didn't name names, but I'm thinking that's probably uh, Tulsi that they're thinking about. But they could be thinking about um, Amy because it says Lau didn't name names, but he previously argued that the race would become a three-way contest between Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, and former Vice President Joe Biden. In a statement Saturday, the Progressive Change Campaign Committee a PAC supporting Warren suggested that Senator Amy Klobuchar, who dropped out Monday afternoon, might be next. So, oh, I guess maybe Amy did drop out already. So I'm going to have to look this up and see if Amy has dropped out. Because if I'm reading this right, then we might be down to five candidates. They all need to get out of the way. You know, it's okay to dream, but dreams without plans are only wishes. So if you're still wishing, move out of the way because the American people do not have time for wishes and hopes as far as, you know, hoping that you would do the right thing and hoping that you say the right thing and hoping that you can get us excited about backing you. If you haven't gotten it yet, chances are this go-around, you won't get it. So bow out gracefully now. Don't waste anybody's time. Tired of seeing well, you like on I the said. news. And then today <laughs> you're on the news making a thousand promises, and tomorrow you're like, you know what? I'm not going to run anymore. Just sit down. Go to the end of the bench, well, man. Get you some popcorn and some soda. Relax. At least one thing that I have noticed, and, you know, whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, and we'll see what happens as more of this goes on, but it seems that at least two of the people that dropped out have thrown their endorsements behind Mr. Biden, because I heard that um definitely says that um, 50 minutes ago, Senator Amy Klobuchar dropping out of the presidential race said she will endorse Joe Biden. I believe that I'd heard something similar from Mayor Pete or at least some of his campaign people. So it looks like the moderates are at least apparently all kind of like going behind Biden as their leader. Now, you know, whether I guess Elizabeth Warren would be the closest to Bernie and um, that's of the candidates left 
Tulsi, I guess, is a little bit on the progressive side, too. So it'll be interesting to see whether they go with Bernie or whether we just have the Bernie bandwagon that is uh, very supportive of him and everything. My big concern, and we'll talk to this with my guests and everything in a minute, is that I know that the last time that Bernie did not make it, a lot of his supporters sat on the bench. They just kind of like you talk about people sitting on the bench. They just kind of like said, we're not going to vote. We didn't, our candidate didn't win. We don't like Hillary, so we're not going to vote at all. And that's part of the reason that we have a certain nut currently occupying the White House. But, you know, he definitely did not win the popular vote. He lost the popular vote. But I, you have to wonder if he would have lost it even greater and lost the delegate count if some of the Bernie people had actually gotten involved and not chosen to sit out on the bench the way that some of them opted to do. Yeah. Still waiting. <laughs> I'm still waiting. You know what I'm saying? The real candidates will be left. Give it about three more months. And then everybody yep. else will be saying, you know what? I wanted to run for president. I was thinking about it. I had all these plans. But what happened? just didn't work out. Okay, so go that way. Work on whatever. And then come back again if you so choose. If not, hey, at least you could say you considered running for president you just didn't have what you thought you would get and be done with it yeah i, I agree with you it's about got, for us to get to our guests but i think that yeah. before we get to the guests i think that in 2028 you know that's giving us plenty of time i'll be uh eight years from now i will be i'm 57 about to go on 58 so i'll be 65 going on 66 so i think that in eight years and the show will be 14 years old by that time we'll have tons of world-renowned guests and will be well-known and everything. I think that me and you should run for president and vice president. So we're declaring now that we're going to run in 2028 or 2032 for the office <laughs> of the presidency. Everybody else is joking. Everybody Look, else is going for it. We might as well try. <laughs> man, they're going to take off a whole – it's going to be a whole lot of angry folks because um, we're we going to do some experiment with some of those, like the racist folks. We'll find a place for them. It's some land somewhere – Outside of this, oh, just like the Cubans sent all their criminals to Miami back in the eighties, we're gonna just ship them somewhere else to some undiscovered land, drop off some supplies, and tell them make it happen. You know, <laughs> here's your own place. Keep it moving. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but we got this guest get ready to come in, man, and we, we're going to bring him in in just one second. It's Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, y'all. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, and, of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive, and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. All right, we're back. Thanks for calling Straight Talk with Dana Mark. You're now on the line. Tell us who you are and where you're calling from. This is Shell Horowitz from Hadley, Massachusetts. All right, How are good you evening. doing, Shell? Glad, glad to have you call in, Shell. I'm glad that you were able to call in. Shell is involved with some very major involvement with what's going on in the greening of our world. You know, some people think that uh, 
climate change and things like that don't exist, and some people can't figure out why we would even need to be involved in the kind of greening of uh, organizations and the greening of uh, just life in general. But, you know, Shell is definitely about the fact that we need to be concerned about our environment and things of that nature. And he's been involved in a number of things. He's got great news. He says reducing hunger, poverty, war, and catastrophic climate change can also be profitable. So, you know, some people that are climate deniers, including, like I said, certain people that might be sitting in D.C., um, may not believe that, but he's actually found ways that it can be profitable. Companies include uh, Unilever, General Motors, and Walmart that create, have created billions in new revenue by greening their own companies and their markets and even their supply chain. So he's actually uh, found out that they can actually make a profit while actually greening their companies. And another example that he gives on his page is Greystone Bakery, which is a supplier to Ben and Jerry's. They hire unemployable ex-cons, formal mental patients, and recovering addicts. So they're actually doing a lot of work in just society building and things of that nature. Folks that some people may have written off, but they're actually doing a great job of showing that you don't have to write these folks off. So, And he's also talked about at least three companies that are profiting by replacing toxic, fire-prone kerosene landers throughout the developing world with solar-powered LEDs that increase health and safety and eliminate a monthly expense and create economic opportunity. So, Shell, how did you get involved in this kind of work? I mean, you're doing a lot of great work in the uh, environment and doing it with things that, like I said, I know we've got certain people that exist in certain sectors of the political world that don't believe in these kind of things that are going on with our climate, but you found out that not only is it true what's going on with our climate, but that it can also be profitable if we do correct things to help our climate. So how did you get involved exactly in this right, work? Mark. Yeah. And thank, thanks so much for this, this warm introduction. It's, it's really true that the climate is changing. I live in New England and we've had like practically no snow this year. And we've had a number of years lately like that. Uh, there was one year we had like a tornado and a hurricane and all sorts of stuff we never get. So any anybody who's still denying climate change is real. I, I wonder what planet they're living on because it isn't this one. But um, the, where I come at this is the idea that business can be a solution, not only to climate change, but also, as you mentioned, to hunger, poverty, war, and other major, major issues, as long as they can figure out a way to make a profit on it. So I wrote my 10th book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, to show them how they can make a profit by doing the right thing. And it's, it's really exciting, and this is a long roundabout answer to your question of how did I get into this in the first place, because it was a long, slow evolution. I started as kind of your basic marketing guy, but I was always an activist on the side. And then about 20 years ago, a local developer said he was going to mess up a local mountain by building 40 McMansions on it. And while all the experts were saying, oh, this is terrible, there's nothing we can do, I went out and with some other people organized a movement and stopped it in 13 months flat. And I realized that that campaign pulled together a lot of my knowledge, both as a marketer and as an activist. So I started looking around for, well, okay, I, I just did this amazing grassroots political campaign using my marketing skills. What happens if I bring in the analysis of my activism into the marketing side? 
So uh, that began an evolution that took a number of years and a number of forms where I started first looking at business ethics as a success driver and then uh, going green as a success driver. And then I really like the, the world is clearly changing. We've had starting with the 2005 tsunami and, and uh, Katrina and all that and, and going to this rash of, of major recent storms a couple of years ago that trashed every place from Texas to Puerto Rico. I really started looking at, well, could business? it's not enough for business to just go green. What if business was actually able to create solutions to these problems? What would encourage businesses to solve these problems? Well, if they can sell stuff that people want to buy and make money doing it, that's the self-interest piece. So there's your, your long answer to the question of how did I get started on this. But it's really a journey that goes back more than 40 years because that's how long I've been doing both the marketing and the activism. Yeah, because it's interesting seeing this kind of activism going on. I've actually, um, I've had a couple of ties to environmental activism. I grew up in a town called Warrington, North Carolina, which a lot of people may not know that town, but it was actually, if you're familiar with the term um, environmental justice and things of that nature, it's kind of came out of Warrington, right? Because that's kind of where they did the dumping of uh, certain chemicals down around Virginia and North Carolina and community members realized what was going on and had, and had protests. And that was around in the eighties. Uh, Cause I, again, I just got out of college. Yeah. So that was around the eighties yeah. and everything. So and, and you know, this that, is a pattern that we see over and over again. We see that companies do their polluting and uh, dump their toxics in places with a high concentration of people of color and a high concentration of people with lower incomes because they figure those people aren't going to be able to fight back. So you see it, for example, on the Texas Gulf Coast. You you see enormous amounts of of pollution in in that area. I was actually just down there doing some immigration justice work in Brownsville, and it's – you can't avoid seeing what is happening to the environment out there. And also you can't avoid realizing that a lot of this mass migration to the U.S. has to do with climate justice because people in those Central American countries where the refugees are mostly coming from have been deeply impacted. We met a guy who said, I would still be in my own country except that the rain stopped falling and I couldn't farm anymore. And we heard a lot of stories like that. Wow, so you're seeing a lot of that. And then my other tie, because I remember growing up, like I said, I'm in my uh, late 50s, but I remember growing up in the uh, 70s, and I was actually the fans, you know, some people might say that should admit to being a fan of what some people may consider a terrorist, but I remember a guy that was called The Fox who wrote a book called Ecotage, and I became a fan of what he was doing because he was actually seeing polluters like in the Midwest and other places, and he would actually find ways to kind of dumped the waste back on them. Because I remember one case, I think uh-huh. he went into a president's office of a major corporation and had found some sludge. So he snuck into the office. Don't know how he snuck into the office. I haven't figured that out. But he just <laughs> kind of like dumped the sludge there in the president's office. So when he came there, he found this stinky sludge that was laying there in his office. So I'm sure he was in for a rude awakening when he realized that it had come from one of his own factories and his own place. Yeah, that's that's a, a very effective guerrilla tactic for sure. It's probably harder to do now since security in any corporation is a lot different now than it was 30, 40 years ago. I'm, you and I are pretty much contemporaries. I'm just a little older than you at 63. Yeah, so not that far off. It's about yeah, about six, five or six years. So you probably remember hearing about Ecotage and those kind of folks. And you're right, it is harder to do. What when you hear people like the current person that is sitting in the office 
uh, and hopefully we'll get out. Don't know if we'll get them out with, as we were just talking about with one of your contemporaries, because it seems like she's running on a, uh, as Dean just said, it might be a prayer, since she does apparently has not won any delegates, that being Elizabeth. But when you hear people that are talking about the fact that it doesn't exist, um, what is your answer to them? Like, if you run into these folks, I'm sure you run into them at conferences and just out and about, and they're sitting there telling you that the impacts of pollution are not as bad as what we claim it is out there, those of us that are studying the environment and things of that nature. So what is your answer to people that might be trying to be climate deniers and not believe that what we are seeing happening is actually happening? I love giving them this answer, Mark. I love saying to them, let's just say for a moment you're right. Let's say that climate change isn't really a problem and that all we get if we address climate change is we get a renewable energy economy that's going to be clean and green, so we get huge health benefits, keep people out of the hospitals, reduce asthma cases. Um, let's say we, we don't have to breathe all that filth, but it's not really hurting the climate, but all of a sudden we've got clean air, clean water, better food, Let's just say that you're right, and all of these other positive outcomes are just gravy. Isn't it worth doing it anyway? And now let's flip it around and let's say that I'm right. And if we don't address the climate, we are possibly looking at a world that our children and grandchildren cannot inherit. We are looking at serious problems with growing enough food for a rapidly growing worldwide population. We are looking at serious problems with heating up the atmosphere, changing what farmers can grow in different places. We, you know, on and on and on and on. So I'd say let's just assume that whether you're right or I'm right, it still makes sense to do these things. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, sometimes you'll hear people try to claim that we don't have to worry about this. I mean, they kind of like go for the back to the future answer, as I call it, because they claim that we don't have to worry about this because eventually we're all going to wind up moving to either the moon or to um, the ocean, you know, the Atlantis kind of philosophy and everything. And I'm sitting there going like, well, we don't even have the technology to get there right now. I mean, I know that Elon Musk and some, I know Elon Musk and others are trying to get us there, but as best I can tell, we're a long way away from actually having whole colonies up in the moon or even down in the ocean, contrary to what Hollywood and some other movie makers may be saying that is out there. But it seems like we're a long way from this actually being a reality. Yeah, just just like the same people you hear talking about how nuclear fusion is going to solve our energy woes. Well, it's been 50 or 60 years that they've been trying to make that work. And meanwhile, sun shines on us every day. The wind blows. We have magnetic forces we can harness. We have algae we can harness. We have so many ways that can get us to a clean energy future faster, cheaper, more profitably. Why are we putting our hopes on these very exotic, not developed, and not necessarily safe technologies? I'm old enough to remember when nuclear power was being sold as the clean and green alternative, and we all know how that turned out for the people who live near Chernobyl or Fukushima. Well, we could even go locally in North Carolina, uh, locally in the U.S., and I don't know that it turned out all that great for people that are near Thousand Island. No, or for that matter, um, near where they're building that plant in Voges, which I think is just over the line in Georgia. Um, uh, it's a, you know it, it's a technology that should never have been. My first book was on why nuclear power is a terrible idea, and I updated it after Fukushima and found nothing to change my mind. 
there's absolutely no reason to go there. And it's just the, it was the U.S. government basically bribed and blackmailed private energy companies into developing nuclear power, saying that if they didn't, the government would, because they needed to justify all the resources that were going for atomic bombs. This is going back to the 40s and 50s. So these arguments made no sense at the time, and they make even less sense now when we have the good green alternatives. But let's just talk about how, you know, how can we change the thinking about business? So many people think, oh, business is always bad. It's like, you know, and I, I come out, out of the, the, the progressive move, and I've heard those arguments my whole life. I at one point believed them. But I look at, at the really good companies out there. I, I look at the a company like Patagonia that is not afraid to run an ad saying, don't buy this jacket because you might not need it, or Ben & Jerry's, which has not only has it done things like employ people with mental disabilities in some of the scoop shops, but it is also, and, and they buy their brownies from Grayston Bakery, which you mentioned in, in the introduction, that hires all these unemployable people, and basically the only way you get a job at Grayston Bakery is to be next in line, and if you're next in line, no matter who you are and what you've done, you get that job, and you get training to make it work. And you get all of a sudden, you've been, let's say you're an ex-felon, and you've been out on the streets and can't find work because nobody will hire an ex-felon, and all of a sudden, you've got within two years, you've got, oh, I was a manager at Grayston Bakery on your resume. Your whole future is going to be real different. Huh? So there's there's a lot of to be said for for doing the right thing in business and what people also may not realize is that it's good business because you're engendering enormous loyalty among your customers your employees your neighbors your stakeholders everybody wants to see you succeed because they see you doing right first and not just being only concerned about how much money is going to the bottom line at the end and you know if you've got a choice between let's just say Buying a socially responsible ice cream as much as ice cream with its high-fat content can be socially responsible um, versus uh, an equally good super premium ice cream with no politics. You know, what are you going to support? You're, you're going to put your money where your values are. This is why you've seen this enormous growth in things like fair trade coffee and cocoa and sugar mm -hmm. and the beginnings of a movement around fair trade fashion. And uh, people, there's a market for it, and people will consistently pay at least a little bit more for stuff that is in keeping with their values and is of high quality and is made by a company they trust. And the, yeah, this one is Mark. You, you, let me just one one more quick thing. Yeah, yeah, a lot of people do not realize that to bring back an existing customer is so much cheaper than to bring in a new one. If you're a customer that people, sorry, a company that people trust. People are going to come back to you. They're going to tell their friends. They're going to become your unpaid ambassadors. You do wrong for them, you've got to start all over again every time, bring in a whole new batch of customers and pay 10 or 7 or 15 times as much to bring in each one as you would to bring those other people back or get them to refer their friends. Because one of the arguments I've heard, and I agree with you, that sometimes you have to go to places that are going to be a little bit more expensive in order to live up to the principles and everything. But I do know that some of the arguments that people will give you, if particularly like if you're going to the grocery stores, like, um, and I'll use the example of Whole Foods or Trader Joe's, that's the complaint that people will give you is that they want to do more of that, but they're afraid that it is more expensive than they would go if they went to a another chain and 
paid something that isn't necessarily as environmentally conscious, or at least the way that they tout themselves as being a little bit more environmentally conscious, because some of those we're not even sure about their environmentalism and how much lip service they're giving and how much they're actually doing. But that is kind of the running joke among some of the grocery store people. I mean, people that go to those grocery stores is the whole thing of like, you know, they call it whole paychecks and things of that whole nature. Paycheck, so, yeah. so what do you tell well, folks? You know, that are, there's plenty of, plenty of ways to hold those costs down. Uh, just as an example, up here in the Northeast, we have a brand of paper products, toilet paper, napkins, towels called Markel. Now Markel was really early to recycling. They started producing all of their paper goods with recycled paper in 1950. Now, in 1950, oh, wow. I was minus seven, okay? <laughs> so they've been doing this for 70 years, and they are a price leader. It, it costs actually a lot less to buy a four-pack of Markel than a four-pack of some other brands. And wow. they're able to do this using basically New York City's junk mail as their main supply. And uh, they've been doing it a really long time, but what they, it was really interesting is they forgot to tell anybody for the first about 60 years of this. And then somewhere around 2008, they started really discussing it, and suddenly they became not only the price leader but a market leader. They were selling an awful lot more paper products once people realized that they were a socially conscious, environmentally conscious company. You can also, when you look at food, there is this wonderful movement called um, consumer-supported agriculture, CSA farming. You go, like, we have a membership. We pay a few hundred dollars a year, and every single week from early June until all the way through October, we go to the farm and we get our vegetables, and we don't pay mm -hmm. anything for those vegetables because we paid up front. And we get, I'd say, well, we usually get probably 15 or 20 pounds a week at least. Uh and so you think, figure 15 or 20 pounds of organic local food at some place like Whole Foods, let's just say it's going to average you $5 a pound. So that would be $75 a week. So that means that our farm share pays for itself on about week four. <laughs> so um, there, there's, you know, a lot of ways you can do this that don't have to cost a lot. I mean, I back um, in my 20s, I was writing books about frugality. And it's amazing how well you can live if you just know how to shop carefully and know what the, the ways to get a bargain are and to do it in a socially responsible way. Like, I only buy fair trade chocolate. I will not buy a chocolate bar to bring into my house that doesn't have a, a, some kind of fair trade logo on it because I don't want to be supporting child slavery in the Ivory Coast. But I have a discount store near me where I can get a bar of that for about $3. And I'm talking about a three-ounce bar or a three-and-a-half-ounce bar. So that's not any more expensive than you're going to pay for a three-ounce bar of Hershey's or Nestle's. Yeah, that's real true. And I know both me and Dean are both uh, sports fans, different sports. I know he's definitely into football. I like football as well, but I'm definitely, I think, more of a basketball fan than he is and a couple of other sports like track and field. But I do know that uh, just in reading and everything, that they're, I guess they still do it, but some of the big New York um, sports franchises and others we're actually going around and, you know, all those thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of people in those arenas, they were actually collecting some of that food that's left over in order to get it out to some of the people that are in um, 
low income areas or poor areas and like that not just throwing this food away because a lot of times that is total waste of food that we're just getting rid of that is not going to help anybody. I mean it's not even helping the animals, yeah. it's not even going to them. And I know that they had I talk about I that in my TED talk actually, which the URL for it is up on my website at goingbeyondsustainability.com. And, um, yeah, roughly 30 to 40 percent of all food created in this country is eventually wasted, and that is criminal when people are starving, and people are starving in this country. So there's, we, we, need, we have plenty of food to go around for everybody, but we've got some serious homework to do on the distribution and on getting rid of that waste. So the, all these programs to take, uh, like, odd-shaped produce or uh, – stuff that maybe it's got a little dent in the can or that's past date but totally safe to use. It's it's good to get familiar with when does a date mean something and when doesn't it. Like you can buy yogurt that's two weeks out of date and it's probably not going to be good. But you can buy, I, I am a very big fan of Indian food, and we buy Indian hot sauces and we keep them in the fridge for literally years after their expiration dates and they're totally fine. Uh, so you have to know when, when food safety is an issue and when things are just, oh, the manufacturer thinks they should put a date on it because that way you'll buy it again. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because I was um, just wondering about that because you mentioned Indian food, and uh, I eat some of that every once in a while. I um, have friends that are definitely Indian descent and of uh, other um, Asian descent, so and I don't eat it as much as I would like because it's very good food and everything, but uh, just regular food like meats and peanut butter and cereals, I oftentimes see those dates and I'm not going to lie, I sometimes panic and wind up throwing it away because I see that date and the date says that it's expired and I'm sitting there going like, uh, they know that was a month ago. That's I'm afraid that if I eat this meat and I live near Duke, I might be visiting the Duke Hospital. I'm not trying to visit well, them earlier than I have to. <laughs> meat is one of the foods you do want to be careful about. Uh, I would not eat meat that's seriously post-date. <clears throat> but a lot of stuff, um, like those aseptic box juices, they're usually good for about a year after their expiration date. Uh, cereal will get a little stale, but it's not going to hurt you um, unless you're putting it in a high heat area where it's going to get rancid. If you have no air conditioning, you're living in South Carolina, maybe not so much, but if you're in South Carolina, you probably have air conditioning. So, right. uh, you know, er everything, you just have to be an educated consumer here. And know what is going to be good for a long time and what is not. And as I said, meat and dairy, animal products in general, you want to be at least a little careful. But the reality is you're going to open up that container of yogurt and you're going to smell it and you're going to see whether it's got any blue goo on the top. And you're going to know. And like uh, speaking of blue goo, like cheeses, a lot of times you can scrape off the mold and you go quarter inch underneath and the cheese is fine. But also keeping in mind Whatever we don't get to eat, there's plenty of better places to put it than a landfill. You can, If you live in a rural area, you can find a pig farmer who will take your stuff. Um, you can compost a lot of it, not meat. Um, there's you know, a lot of you can donate it to a food kitchen before it's gone too funky. I Actually, when I was down on the border, one of the things that I did is I helped to do food prep for a 1,000 of the refugees who are stuck on the Mexican side of the border one day. And one of the things I did on that shift was I, I had to clean some really funky heads of romaine lettuce. And some of them I was throwing away literally half of the, the head, and some of them I just had to pull off one or two leaves. But 
Hmm. You know, you pull off those those leaves, you give it a really good washing down, and you have what looks like a new but small lettuce. So, but, and then these were, <laughs> uh, if you opened up the crate, you would have said, oh, these are totally gone. But they weren't. You just had to check them. I'm not necessarily advocating that you deal with spoiled lettuce, but uh, what I am saying is that a lot of the things that we think are are ready to be thrown out are actually not. And if they are, they should be composted so you return those nutrients to the soil. And none of this requires any great sacrifice. Uh, a lot of I actually here's a gift I have for your listeners. Okay. I have an ebook called Painless Green. It's got 111 different ways to save water, energy, and money. Most of them very easy and either free or very very cheap. And it's a 9.95 ebook, and I'm going to give it away to anybody listening who wants it. And all you have to do is go to painlessgreenbook.com slash forward slash Earth Day. Painlessgreenbook.com slash Earth Day. And put in Straight Talk when it asks you for a code. And you'll be able to download that ebook for free. Okay. So we've had our listeners heard that, that he is offering the book for free, and all you got to do is follow those directions that he just gave you. And if you flip back and listen and rewind, you can hear the um, address one more time, and that's a way that you can get this book. And it sounds like a wonderful book that definitely a lot of folks need to use on a uh, regular basis and doing things consistently in that way. Yeah. Now, you mentioned earlier about – I'll put about, in a plug for my, my other book, my, my business book, uh, yes. the one I mentioned Please. earlier, going um, – sorry, <laughs> Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. That is, of my ten books, I think it is the, the best that I've ever written and the one that could really change the whole way business is done in this country. And that one I'm not giving away. But you can go to goingbeyondsustainability.com, click on the book cover, and either order it from your favorite bookseller or order it from me if you'd like an autograph. And it's not expensive. It's it's under $25. Yeah, that's not bad at all. I mean, one of the jokes, we have a uh, poetry group that meets out at Haytai, which is one of the cultural arts centers that I work at, and they are always selling their poetry books, and their the running routine that folks have is when they're selling the books, it's like, you know, Somebody will say that the book is ten dollars or it might be fifteen, and then the crowd will chant back, "Only ten dollars!" So they'll make this whole routine about the fact that. <laughs> so they can say the same thing about yours, only twenty-five dollars. So it's not that bad in terms of every. In terms of you get a three hundred fifty-page book with with really cutting-edge thinking. <laughs> not not a little skinny poetry chapbook. I, I love poetry. My wife and I actually met. We were both reading poetry at the same open reading. Okay, so you've done some poetry okay. as well. One of the things I found out really interesting, just kind of changing topics, I do want to get back to um, what we're talking about in terms of some of the environmental stuff, but a number of the poets that we have at the Cultural Arts Center and just around the country, because they come from throughout the country, are doing poetry that deals with what you're talking about. A lot of the poetry community and a lot of the film community are dealing with social change and using the arts as a oh, means yeah. to address those social changes, because I know there's at least a couple of poets that have done poems that revolve around um, social change issues. It might be things around um, racism, feminism, uh, Mm-hmm. race relations, um, uh, a number of topics, uh, the school-to-prison pipeline, a number of topics like that that they address using the um, 
abuse issues, things of that nature, but they use the poetry as a means to make their point. And I do believe that there's at least one or two poems that I remember that definitely touched on the environment as well. I wish I could think mm-hmm. of the poets and the um, titles of the poems, but they're not coming to me right now. Now, you talked about nuclear power. Yeah. The other environmental issue that a lot of people kind of hesitate about, I'm actually think that we're doing wrong with that as well, but I just wondering what your thoughts are about the way that we're handling coal because I know we've got a lot of people that are doing things with coal as well, and I think they were probably doing it wrong. It might be part because a part of my heritage is definitely the African American heritage, but I have some Native American ancestry as well, so a lot of that is on native land. What's going on? But it seems to me that a lot of this stripping that we're doing with Mother Nature is not all that healthy either. Okay, I may make some enemies here, but I'm going to say that I think the time has come for us not to be burning fossil fuels and not to be digging it up anymore, that we have many, many alternatives, that those things create an awful lot of toxicity, and unfortunately, even even wood, wood is renewable, but it's not green. Uh, uh, pollution, uh, lung diseases, all that stuff that happens when you burn anything is a problem and i do think we need you know you talked earlier about environmental justice obviously we can't just say to the coal industry you're done your people can go out on the bread line Uh, we have to have programs in place that should be the responsibility of the federal government and these mining companies that have been profiting for 200 years digging this stuff up and burning it Um, we need to have job retraining and I, I think it would be – wouldn't it be great if we had a Marshall Plan-style program that would employ the people who used to work in the coal mines or used to work in the oil refineries to go and greenify this great country of ours? And that would be putting up solar and putting up wind and uh, insulating. It's amazing you know, how much energy we waste just by leaky houses or <laughs> leaky buildings. Uh, or inefficient cars. Uh, there's so much we can do with with small scale hydro and with all of this stuff. It's it's every day almost. I, I read a new article about some amazing technology. Like uh, I actually contributed to a Kickstarter a while back for frisbee sized hydro plants that don't need mm-hmm. a dam. You throw them into a moving stream, they spin, they generate power. How cool is that? So That's real cool. uh, we, we, we need to find ways for the people who have been working on making our country dirtier to make it cleaner. And that will also involve things like changing the way we look at transportation, which even where I, I live in rural New England, and you basically, if you don't have a car, you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Now, town on either side of me has a decent bus system, but my town does not. So I, yeah, I actually depend. I don't have a choice. Yeah, got to drive. Yeah, I, I actually depend on mass transit myself, and I know that some of the buses have tried to go to some more environmentally friendly buses, and I think they've actually got a plan to make them all be what they consider more environmentally friendly within the next. Um, I'm not sure exact time frame, but probably within the next five to ten years or, or whatever, because mm-hmm. we definitely are a high-growth area here in the Raleigh-Durham area, so there's a lot of growth, a lot of people that are moving into the downtown area. It's definitely becoming a very gentrified area and things of that nature. Well, one of the things mm-hmm. I'm curious as to what you tell people in the regards to this is 
um, I actually live in an apartment complex, and a lot of the times the apartment complexes are managed by people that aren't in the same state that they're in. And the same can be said with mm-hmm. some of these developers that are coming into places and might be someplace like O'Reilly in, a, in a Durham, North Carolina, or it might be someplace like New, Harlem, New York, and places like that. So what kind of words do you give people to encourage them, or how do you encourage people to get these corporations that are not necessarily in their area to also go green and to do the green thing. Because like I said, I mean, the well, apartment complex that I live in is based out of Florida. I mean, it's here, but their offices are Florida-based. Yeah. Or Georgia. Well, you Either mentioned Harlem. I'm actually from New York City originally, and that poetry reading where I met my wife was in Greenwich Village. And uh, we got to tour in the South Bronx in a really economically depressed area. We got to tour a wonderful rooftop solar farm um, but they weren't. There was a vegetable farm, but it was it was solar powered, and hydroponic, and they were growing bok choy and they were growing broccoli and I forget what else. Uh, they, I remember they gave us a really really tasty head of kale. That um, they're growing eight stories above the South Bronx. And the good news is that most corporations at this point, at least the bigger ones, have, if not a sustainability department, they at least have a sustainability coordinator. And even the oil companies have been pushing when, when Trump tried to pretend that there's no such thing as climate change. It was ExxonMobil that pushed back and said, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> and that was, that was a shock to me because ExxonMobil has been part of the problem for most of its history, and now they're beginning to get a little bit enlightened. Um, you know, you look at a company like Walmart, what Walmart has, I, I have a number of reasons why Walmart is not a place I prefer to shop, and I don't shop there. But I give them a lot of props for what they've done to green the supply chain because they have the economic clout to say to people, if you want to sell in our store, you got to get rid of this five layers of packaging and give us something simpler. And people do it because they want to have that market. So in all my years of consulting and writing and speaking, I haven't done as much to green the business world as they have with that one simple dictate that said, you got to do it this way if you want to sell here. Now, that doesn't mean that their hands are clean on labor issues or or some of the other reasons why I I don't choose to shop there. But uh, it is phenomenal what they've been able to do. And I I went to a conference. I was actually moderating a couple of panels. And the panels that I was moderating, the people that were speaking were from Coca-Cola. They were from Pirelli Tire. The corporate world has figured out that they need to do something. They cannot wait for the government, and they especially can't wait for this government. Mm-hmm. But even in the Obama years, it was pretty clear that you could not wait around for the government to do it for you. If you thought this was an issue, and it is, you have to deal with it. And all of these companies have reaped enormous benefits, and I talk about this in Guerrilla Marketing, Tio the World. The money that they are saving on fuel, the money that they're saving on spoiled inventory, Um, the money that they are making by being able to sell organic food or low-E light bulbs or low-flush toilets or whatever it is, enormous. I mean, Walmart, actually, the last time I I did the research, which was a few years ago, I discovered that Walmart sells more organic food than Whole Foods does. And the really interesting thing to me is that they are selling organic food to people who ain't never been to a Whole Foods in their life and ain't going to start now. 
They've created a whole new $15 billion a year market selling organic food to people who didn't think they needed organic. I give them props for that. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like they definitely need those kind of positive props and everything. Now, you said that you had done some work in, I believe it was Texas. I was just wondering, did you ever get by, because one of the films that we showed was a film about a town called Mossville, which apparently is a community in Louisiana that has been contaminated and uprooted by petrochemical plants and is the the community has actually been coming to terms with the loss of their ancestral home because a lot of people had actually lived there, I guess, through like slavery and things of that nature. But they're actually fighting a lot in Louisiana. So I didn't know if any of your work had carried you to that part of the world as well. Because I know a young lady. No, um, actually, Michelle the only Lanier. time I've ever been in, I, I was to Louisiana on my honeymoon. We went to New Orleans. That was 1984. So I, I really uh, can't speak with any knowledge on the ground of situations there. But I've certainly read a lot. It is definitely a hotbed of environmental justice issues. Like Texas, it's heavily polluted, a lot of problems with the way things have been done, a lot of problems with the way land has been uh, – what's the verb I'm looking for? Uh, who gets to have land and who doesn't? Um, you know, we, we do need to have some definite economic reform in this country so that it's not only the the one percent or the even point one percent that that gets to have all their needs met while everybody else is sort of left out to dry that one of the the big mistakes i think that president obama made and mind you i have a tremendous amount of respect for that man but he was very willing to bail out the banks but he kind of forgot about the underwater homeowners who had mortgages from those banks and I think that was part of why we have the administration we have now, because people were so desperate for change that when Bernie was no longer in the race and Hillary was the nominee, they voted for the only change open to them. I certainly hope that they've seen the error of their ways. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get, like uh, Tomorrow, I, I, I vote in Go Massachusetts, ahead. so tomorrow I get to vote, and I'm voting for Elizabeth Warren. And, and that's actually who I voted for as well. I mean, I don't have to announce that, but I did. That's who I went with as well. I felt that she was a strong candidate. I liked the way she handled the debates and things of that nature. Um, I, Like I said, I'm not sure whether she'll be able to get past the machinery of both Biden and Bernie, but we can always hope. We can, and I'm a little suspicious about the timing of both Budacek and Klobuchar pulling out just before Super Tuesday. What is up with that? And it seems like, uh, you know, a few months ago it looked like Biden, Biden was going to be the, in, I can't talk straight, inevitable nominee, and then all of a sudden it got hopeful and there were a whole bunch of candidates um, doing better, and then all of a sudden it's looking very strange <laughs> how, how this is happening the day before Super Tuesday. So, but I'm and still going to vote for Warren, and I f I'm hoping maybe some of the Klobuchar voters will go to Warren, or some of the Budacek voters will go to Warren, and that she'll do better than she's done, because that's I think she's got the kind of leadership that we need. Yeah, I can definitely see that, and it is interesting that three candidates dropped out on one weekend. So I would agree with you that that was a little bit uh, not that normal, and they were three at least two fairly strong candidates in both Pete and Amy. I don't know necessarily that um, Tom Steyer, even though he had poured, poured a lot of money and was doing all that well, but at least two of them no, he wasn't. have he, he, he good decent politics. numbers. He's an interesting guy. But I, I also don't think that, you know, we saw what happened the last time when a billionaire with no political experience 
gets into office. It's not the best way to prepare for the job. Agreed. I don't know that we need that. We don't need another version from the other side. I would definitely agree with no, that. There's no doubt. We don't. So hopefully things will improve in that regard, and we'll hopefully, find things. Yeah, this is yeah. this is the election of our lives. I, I I do worry that if he is reelected, we are going to be moving from 1933 to 1938, and 1938 was not a pretty year, um, particularly if you were a Jew or a Gypsy or uh, uh, loved somebody of the same sex or in any way criticized the, the Nazi Party. And I think we really have to be careful that we are not headed down the road to fascism. So whoever the Democrat is, even if it's not my favorite or even somebody that I even like, I will vote for the Democrat in November. Um, and what are your thoughts about a Democrat that might also come from that billionaire kind of philosophy? Because we do have that last-minute entry, and that's what some people are afraid of. There might be two billionaires going against each other, and I'm not too yeah, sure that how I feel I'm, about it. I'm not a fan, but again, if Bloomberg is the nominee, I will vote for him. I probably won't work for him. If 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 Warren or Sanders is the nominee, I'll work hard for them. But I I, I doubt that I would work hard for Biden or or for Bloomberg. I doubt that I'd work at all for them, but I will vote for them because you gotta you know. Right now, tomorrow, I have the opportunity to vote for the greater good, but in November, it may be the lesser evil. It was last time I I did vote for Hillary. Um, wasn't all that happy about it, but I did it. Sometimes we have to do that. We have to vote for candidates that we may not be all that pleased with, but we are definitely not that pleased with the alternative. So if, that, if the alternative is going to yeah. be but, but, as know, disastrous as – go we, ahead, Joe. We have options on that too. I don't, I don't understand why we still don't have ranked choice voting. I don't understand why we still have the Electoral College. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that, that, that could shift that would really change the dynamics here. If we had had ranked choice voting in 2016, we would never have had President Donald Trump. We might have had President Ted Cruz, which would have not been great, but we would not have had Trump. And we might have had a President Clinton or a President Sanders. Uh, and for those that are not familiar with that term, and I'm not altogether that familiar with the term, what does what is that term mean, and what is what is what is that? I know a lot of people are not fans of the electoral college, and I'm not a fan of that either because I think that we've lost a couple of elections in the popular vote. The candidate that won didn't really win because the electoral yeah, exactly. college said that somebody else won. Yeah, and those were very very bad administrations, both of them. But um, ranked choice is the idea that when you vote. You shouldn't have to, quote, throw away your vote because, like, okay, let's say tomorrow I'm faced with a choice between Warren and Sanders, whose politics are fairly similar. Their personalities are rather different. But what they actually stand for isn't that different. And now with Klobuchar and Buttigieg out of the race, um, the people who want a more conservative version of the Democrats, um, a centrist version, really their only choice is Biden left. So... What would happen, what, and people, my Bernie friends are telling me, don't vote for Warren tomorrow because you'll end up helping to elect Biden. But I don't think that we're at that stage yet, and I'm not following their advice. But, you know, in if this was the general election, right now, if you, let's just say that you've got, let's say, a 70% majority in favor of, of progressive politics. So you, And let's say that both Warren and Sanders each get about 35% of the vote. Okay, that's the 70. Um, and then you've got another 30 that's going to go 
for um, for Biden. And let's say, if, and okay, so one of the progressives is going to win with that eking out, but not really a clear mandate. Okay, if it's only 60% and the moderates get 40%, then Biden wins even though he doesn't represent the whole population or even the majority. But if you have ranked choice voting, I can say, okay, my first choice is Warren, my second choice is Sanders, and if neither of them get a majority, then they go and look and see who has the least number of votes, that person is out, and then their votes are distributed. So if, uh, let's just say that I voted for Warren as my number one and she's eliminated, uh, my vote goes to Bernie and it's not thrown away. Hmm. I still like this idea, um, but then again, I'm also a fan of. But some people say that it's not that great of an idea because it's more open to cheating. But I can also see the benefit of internet. No, not not the ranked choice voting, but of internet voting because I think that that's the way that we can get closer to the better I didn't percentage say of about voting. voting. I, I I'm not. I I agree that internet voting is is far too hackable, and I also think that the Democrats should have pushed through mandatory hand-countable paper ballots years ago when they had the mm-hmm. chance in 2009. And I think if we had hand-countable paper ballots, we would have had very different election results in at least three of the last five presidential elections. And uh, those ballots should be counted by hand. And, uh, you know, I don't understand why we need to have the results announced 10 minutes after the polls close. Take the time, yeah. count the votes, have monitors there to make sure they're being counted accurately and have a fair election and have something that can't be hacked. But do you ever think that we will move to a point where we will have some sort of, maybe not internet voting, but some sort of voting that is a little bit um, more public, for lack of a better term? And it may not be the internet, but something that we might. gets there's, more there's people engaged. a lot of electoral reforms I'd like to see. Um, and, you know, but ranked choice is something that's been used for 70 years in Cambridge, Massachusetts. San Francisco started using it recently. Um, a, a number of places, New York City, I think, just um, instituted it in certain elections. So it's, it's a movement that's beginning. And that's when I think we can win. Yeah, that sounds like that would definitely improve the situation and it might even get more people to vote. Because I know that I'm oftentimes disappointed, particularly in these off-year elections, even though we all know and we can say until we're blue in the face that the majority of the decisions that are important to us, meaning the decisions that impact us on a regular basis, are at the local and the state level, but we do get caught up in the presidential politics and things of that nature. So we get a little bit of a bump in the four-year elections, and a lot of times the two-year elections, not as much because people are not necessarily finding the benefit of knowing who their soil commissioner is and the mayor and some of the other yeah, offices, exactly. even though at the end of the day, they're the ones that make the decisions that impact us the most. Yeah. My, my wife ran for a small town position. Um, was it only last year? My goodness. I think it was last year. It might've been two years. No, it was two years ago. Um, and you know, in our town votes, very progressive in national and state elections. But the local, those people do not come out for a small local election of who's going to be on your select board and who's going to be your town moderator. And we were not able to pull out the votes that we needed and um, got stuck with, uh, with the incumbent who we were not happy with. But that's the way it goes. Anyway, um, that, we've, we've gone way off the topic here, haven't we? Yeah, we've uh, off the topic. I'm going to get back to the topic. I'm sorry. We did get sidetracked there by a little bit of the politics, but we'll come back to the things that are going on with – who are some of the other businesses along the 
um, you mentioned a couple of, but who are some of the other businesses that you felt have done a great job in terms of being proponents of this kind of green movement here in the, uh, the U.S. and just out there? We've named a couple of them, but I just wanted there are some other examples that you would let folks know about that um, you've been a big-time supporter of. Okay, I love a company called Dean's Beans. It's a coffee roaster in Orange, Massachusetts. I actually know the owner. Uh, he was back when I had a radio show. He was a guest on mine twice. I think he was on one of only three guests that I had more than once. And um, every bean that they have roasted since he opened the doors of the company in 1993. Every single bean has been organic and fair trade. And incidentally, he used to be a labor lawyer, and he got into coffee as a way of doing social change. So his company was from the get-go, built around social change. And then he takes portions of the profits, and not only does he give it back to the coffee communities, but he funds village-led development projects. So the people in the coffee village decide what they need, whether it's a well or a school or a training in um, nonviolence for men who have been abusing their partners, whatever it is that they decide they want. He funds it and sets it up to run it, and then he gets them running their own show. So it's not, you know, a great white father coming in paternalistically to say, here, I'm going to run this NGO for you, and I'm not really going to think about the consequences of the local economy. But it's really, okay, this is what we need as a village, and this man who is uh, not ashamed to be profiting from uh, the coffee that we are growing is giving back to us, some of what he has taken so that we can fund the things we really need in the town and run them ourselves. And I think that's a great model. You do see sometimes that, that charities have very unintended consequences. I think about whether anybody asked I, – I have a lot of respect for Tom's Shoes, uh, which gives a pair of shoes out every time anybody buys one. But I do wonder how much market analysis they did of what is going to be the impact on people who make shoes locally when they do that. And everything is related, as we know. <laughs> so sometimes things that seem simple are not simple, but the other, the flip side of that is that sometimes things that seem way too complicated turn out to be quite simple indeed. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, you're right, a lot of times we don't think about the consequences of what that action might mean. I was wondering, um, I know that you also were a big supporter, at least I told you that you mentioned a couple of times, LED lights. I was just wondering if you could explain to me why you think that those are very good on an environmental standpoint. I know that Cree, which is based here in North Carolina, was a big supporter of LED lights, but um, I was just wondering from an environmental standpoint why you think LED lights are a good um, buy. Okay. Well, first of all, LED lights use something like one-seventh of the energy of incandescent bulbs. They use. Uh, we all know about compact fluorescents. Those are the ones that look like corkscrews. And they were mm -hmm. a great innovation, and they, they cut down the energy use by about 60%, 70%. And then LED lights cut that again in about a half. So it's, it's using really just a, a tiny little trickle. I have LED lights throughout my house, and they're wonderful. It used to be they had terrible quality light, but now they're really good. So that's one thing. And then uh, you talked about D-Light, <clears throat> which is a company that has gone into developing countries and sold LED solar-powered lanterns to people who've been using kerosene. Now, Mark, let me tell you a thing or two about kerosene lamps. Mm -hmm. First, we talked already about the need to get off fossil fuels. Kerosene is a fossil fuel. It's polluting. Right. It gives off toxic fumes. 
it's highly flammable. And if you're living in a little hut in, let's just say, Rwanda, and you're using a kerosene lamp and you actually set your house on fire, you have a fairly good chance of dying or being seriously injured. So the LED eliminates the fire risk. Um, it has a better quality of light, and what that means is that let's just say that people have been working all day, they put in a 10-hour day farming, and then they come home, and they can see well. So maybe they do a little cottage industry making, I don't know, bracelets or something that they can then use to lift themselves out of poverty. Meanwhile, their kids can see by the light to do better on their homework and get better grades and eventually better jobs. And the person who sold them the light and is servicing it for them has a job and is able to uh, to lift themselves out. So you have this, this virtuous ripple effect where everything is making everything else better. Uh, so instead of the vicious circle, you have a virtuous circle. So this little uh, – oh, I should mention that many of these companies are selling these on time payments. So they figure out what you were paying for your kerosene. Let's say it's $2 a month and your family income is $25 a month. So a little less than 10% of your money has been going for fuel for your kerosene light. When you switch to the solar one, that fuel cost goes away, but you still have to pay for the light. So let's say they say, okay, the same $2 you've been paying, we'll take that for 10 months, and then you're done. You own the lamp free and clear, and you have 10% more disposable income and better light and no toxicity and no fire hazard. Wow. Um, I talk that, about that, that extensively in, in, uh, in Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, by the way. I, I go into some detail on that with, with numbers of how the impact was of one company's doing this. No, and that, that definitely what we need to see is more companies doing that kind of work. Now I was wondering, how do you feel that our education system is doing in terms of teaching these kind of green philosophies? I know that we do a really good job of teaching kids, particularly in this day of gig economies, that, you know, going into business is a wonderful thing. And I'm thinking about friends of mine that do things like Dash and Uber, and that's just two examples of uh, gig jobs. I mean, there's all kinds of gig jobs out there. But I sometimes wonder if both on the grade school level and on the college level, if we're doing any kind of good job in terms of teaching these kind of green philosophies in terms of it being a good um, way of doing business. And if if there are good colleges that are doing this, I imagine it probably like Antioch, because Antioch's a liberal college, might do a really good <laughs> job of, of doing these of doing these kind of things. I'm, I'm Antioch class of 77. And I have some friends that graduated from Antioch, so I'm imagining that they probably do some good things like that. I went to Marquette, and it's a Jesuit school, so they may have some business kind of acumen in terms of these kind of things. But I imagine that a lot of our colleges and definitely a lot of our um, grade schools are not doing that great a job of teaching these kind of thoughts. So I'm just wondering how, as you're going around the nation and even the world talking to people about becoming more green aware as you are being an entrepreneur, how we're doing in terms of educating our greater public. Well, I think actually the business schools have gotten a lot better about this in the last 10 years or so, 15 years or so. Um, I go to a lot of conferences. They, they all have tables there. My wife just retired from teaching at the business school at University of Massachusetts, and that's an enormous state university with like 40,000, 5,000 students, and they have a very green campus. They actually have a permaculture farm 
on the campus supplying many of the vegetables. Their dining halls win awards for their good food. I used to dread having lunch meetings on campus, and now I really look forward to it. It's, it's often one of the better meals I have in a, in a particular month. And so, that, and I, I see like Marlboro College and a lot of a lot of the business schools, uh, big well-known business schools, places like Dartmouth, and uh, they're really making the shift. But they're still teaching it as kind of a sideline thing. Like this is uh, for all you cool and groovy hippies, and it, it needs to be somewhat more in. That integrated into the mainstream business curriculum, and then grade schools don't teach really business concepts, and I think that's uh, kind of I, it. Would be nice if they did at least basic financial literacy. We'd have yeah, a lot less problems I... with people racking up big credit card debt and all that stuff mm -hmm. if, if at age six people started teaching at a simple level some lessons about how to run your finances. And um, but I do see the the people who are in between those cohorts. So like people who are graduating high school now, they're not in grad school yet. They're just entering college, but they are so aware. They're organizing big demonstrations. So we all know about the Parkland kids and the amazing things they did. And I am seriously hoping that they have registered some millions of people to vote in these three years. Um, uh, but it's not just the Parkland kids. Like we had. Um, one of my Facebook friends is uh, a, a young woman named Cheryl, and I think she's 20 now. And she organized a big, big march here about gun violence, and she got, like, her whole high school to participate. And then this past fall, she managed the campaign of a friend of mine for a city council seat who won big. And I, I love seeing people like that who are so engaged and so involved. And I was a child activist. I... By the time I got to Antioch when I was 16 and a half, I had been an activist for about four years. I started at age 12. And uh, so I was told I was too young to make a difference, and now at 63 I'm beginning to hear people tell me that I'm too old to make a difference, and I call BS on both of them. Uh, you're never too old or too young. A friend of mine actually, I went to her 100th birthday party in April, March, uh, last year, a year ago, and for what she said she wanted for her 100th birthday is at least 100 people marching with signs through the downtown Northampton, Massachusetts with uh, 100 different causes. She got 300. And uh, she was proudly at the front of the, of the march uh, in her wheelchair being pushed by a friend. And uh, the she wasn't patient enough to wait for the police to show up for the traffic detail control. So the mayor of that city and our state senator were out there directing traffic and stopping cars so that the marchers could get through. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Uh, she uh, Actually, she died in the summer, but two weeks before she died, uh, my wife and I were part of a delegation that went to Homestead, Florida, to witness at the prison for m migrant teenagers that was operating there at the time. And uh, some of the same of us, we just got back from this trip to Texas where we were witnessing what was going on um, in the migrant protection protocols, which is a badly named and extremely oppressive sick joke of how we are treating people trying to get asylum in this country. So uh, anyway, two weeks before she died, Frances was at one of our report backs from Homestead. So she was an activist right up to the very end. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, you're, you're, right, old, you're never too young. Actually, no, I'm a my, big my fan. My younger kid, when, when we did Save the Mountain, 
when we did Save the Mountain, this is 20 years ago. So my kid is now 27, but at the time was six and a half. And um, organized a fundraiser for us, went to around to local storekeepers to get them to donate stuff for a kid's raffle. You know, so a six-year-old can be involved. Oh, yeah, and I'm a big fan and of, and I guess he's it. a, I, yeah, because I'm a, yeah, I guess she's a teenager now, or maybe a, in her 20s, but I'm a big fan of uh, Greta, the one from uh, oh, the um, European. Oh, yeah, she's amazing. Yes. And she definitely doesn't seem to hold any punches in terms of letting folks know that she's concerned about the environment and afraid that there will be no environment for her to be concerned about if some of us that are adults, whether it's in the middle age or the younger ages or even the uh, elderly aren't doing things correctly because she's afraid that by the time she gets to our age, there will be no planet for her to be uh, concerned right. about. And I, I think her, um, that she is on the Asperger spectrum actually gives her in many ways more strength and power than she might have if she were quote unquote normal, uh, more determination. And I, I think it's also not only is she doing amazing things for the environment and climate change, but she's also doing amazing things for disability awareness. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. She's definitely doing some things for disability awareness. Um, I think we have another caller as well. Definitely want you to stay on, Shell, but uh, it looks like we got somebody else on the line that might be Natalie, who I think is calling to talk about her political run. So I definitely want you to stay on the line, and let me see if I can get to Natalie uh, real quick. We don't have to go to a break, Dean. Uh, hold a second. I think I can get there. You got Hello? it. Hello? Is this a – yep, I got it. Is, is this Natalie on the line? Yeah, this is Natalie. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Natalie. We've been talking to Shell Horowitz, who is doing a lot of work with activism out of the environment and really proponents of green and things of that nature, and um, is based out of Massachusetts. He's written a number of great books, and we've been glad to have him on. Natalie, you are running for state office here in North Carolina. So tell people what you're running for and what some of your platforms are. I know that you're also concerned about things that have to deal with activism. I've known you for a number of years and known that you have definitely been involved in a lot of things. And you also were a member of the Soil and Water Conservation before deciding. And I guess you still technically are unless you win the seat. Um, yeah, uh, yes, I am. That's why it's the perfect evening for me to call in, literally just always working, <laughs> just leaving my Soil and Water meeting. And upon election, we will have to um, fill that seat if all goes well, but have been active with these issues, passionate about these issues, served as an associate um, you can serve in, as an associate on the board before becoming elected. So um, hit the ground running. The first thing I did upon being elected was schedule a meeting with um, African-American legislators in the General Assembly to discuss concerns that some of our black farmers were having and our small farmers and was very active um, just making sure that our small farmers have the resources that they need. Also worked really hard to get ahead of this industrial hemp boom and eventual legalization of um, cannabis to make sure that um, farmers of color were not left out of out of those opportunities. It's going to be a multi-billion-dollar business nationally. Yeah, definitely. And I'm imagining that even in the soil and water conservation, you probably had some dealings with some of these companies like what Shale has been promoting, which is these businesses that are entrepreneurship businesses, but they're doing very green kind of businesses. So they are supporting things to a green kind of attitude and not kind of attitudes that will destroy our environment, because he was talking about a company that actually, um, and I forget where it was, Shell, you can jump in, but it was a company that, that employed ex-cons and things of that nature in a, another one of our fair states and everything, yeah, and he was also uh, talking about some of these other businesses. Bakery in Yonkers, New York. 
They mm-hmm. do Graceton Bakery, mm-hmm. Yonkers, New York. They supply brownies to Bed and Jerry's and to some fancy New York hotels. Phenomenal. Yes, actually, agriculture is a sector. It's great that you brought that up. I think it's um, an aspect of the agricultural field that individuals overlook. A lot of the requirements for hiring aren't quite as strict. So a lot of individuals um, that are reentering society and trying to find gainful employment, a lot of them end up in either the agriculture sector, food service business, because um, they don't have to hop through so many hurdles but can make, you know, a good living in those in those fields. So that actually is something that I'm really passionate about. We have a farm, um, I believe in Orange County, Benevolent Farms, and it's um, primarily for women that are reentering society um, that previously had, had records and, you know, just want to work and what, what better way to get back into um, society than working on the farm? Yep. Definitely. And what um, made you decide to run? I know that uh, we've had a couple of folks that are running for state senator. I know some people may know Pierce is running, you're running. But what made you decide that you wanted to go for this office and everything? Because, like I said, um, you've been – how long have you been with the Soil and, Water Conserv- uh, Soil and Water Commission? And what made you decide that you wanted to run for this particular seat? Yeah, I was elected in 2018 with over 84,000 votes. Um, There were, I think, four or five um, individuals on the ballot. One with 84,000 votes was a top vote getter, and um, before that served for two years, so coming on three years of serving on that board. Um, And actually, like most women, um, typically it takes about 10 people to ask us to run before we do it. And this was a situation that you couldn't really plan for. Um, We didn't know that Senator McKissick was going to be offered an appointment by Governor Cooper. So this was a position that um, none of us that were running even knew that this opportunity was going to be available in 2019. But I've been a public servant my entire life, so it's a very natural progression. Um, Been in local government since my early 20s. My very first project was Um, appropriating Obama stimulus funds for transportation projects. So um, the only candidate that has, as far as I've been on the receiving end of what it feels like when your funds are cut and you still have to try and provide services for urban communities as well as rural communities, still try to pave those those roads and do something about potholes and transit when your funds have been cut, still try to um, remediate toxic waste sites and have clean drinking water when the General Assembly has cut your budget. Um, Most recently worked for Attorney General Josh Stein. We worked successfully with a number of legislators to get a bill passed about opioid um, issues and um, the opioid epidemic, and it wasn't even a month later that our budget was gutted by $10 million. So being that I've seen firsthand the power of the pen, I know that um, the power that legislators have is much more than um, what individuals watch and, and keep up with in the news. It's, it's a very, very powerful position. The values that you, um, what you believe in for community, for our state, when it comes to Medicaid expansion, education, criminal justice, environmental issues, all those things have to be funded. Um, you touched on criminal justice earlier. Uh, our governor is limited. He can't do but so much. He can create amazing things like a reentry council to say, let's do something to make sure that our brothers and sisters have um, a means of, of integrating back into society when they come home. But if there's no funding for the reentry council, then what, what are you going to do to actually implement those ideas? So I want to do a lot more work to make sure that we give our governor the support that he needs. We potentially can take the Senate by one seat. So it's actually a very exciting time where since Durham is very blue and very progressive, um, the senator can come in and get a lot of work done um, on behalf of all the people across the state, but as well as Durham, since we can um, push the envelope a little bit more due to um, the amazing people that we would, would represent here in Durham. So running because I'm qualified, 
um, can hit the ground running more so than anyone else running. And because I want to serve people, and I think we need more individuals serving at higher levels of government um, that can legislate from their lived experience. I've been sharing with folks that upon graduating from UNC Chapel Hill, I was only making $10 an hour. Um, at the time, I was living in Durham after graduation, and my rent was only $550. So when people want to fight for a living wage, knowing that average rents in Durham are now upwards of $1,100, I know mm -hmm. what, it, what it feels like to try to make ends meet when, uh, when funds are limited. So I will legislate from my lived experience and can really, really meet all citizens where they are. It's a very diverse district. It covers McDougal Terrace to Central to Duke to the RTP. So we need a senator that can really relate to individuals through the things that they've been through in their life. And I know that I'm the best candidate to do that. Yeah, you've definitely done quite a bit of work. And like I said, because this is, is this your first statewide election? I know that the others were all local, but I believe this is your first statewide election. And how has that been uh, trying to be involved in a statewide election? I know it's definitely, you're covering the Durham area, but I guess technically because it's a state senator, it's considered a statewide election. It is. It is considered a state-level election. We are on the same page as the presidential election, which uh, was really humbling. It was really, really humbling because, again, I, I just want to serve. So um, it things got really real when you see that your name is on the same page as um, the presidential election. But before that, did work on the Deborah Ross U.S. Senate campaign. So uh, we crisscrossed the state. Um, I traveled to over 50 counties with her. I think that's kind of when um, I got the bug of knowing that I was ready to run. I've honestly been asked to run for years, um, even by a community member to run for Durham City Council some years ago, but just wasn't ready. Um, but now I know that Tom is right. So I think the biggest difference in running for this compared to other offices is it is, you know, a lot more high profile. Um, the other thing to highlight with this specific race is um, the difference that we can make based on who we elect. We only have two senators in Durham, and Senator McKissick has done a phenomenal job representing the people of Durham. Um, but we do have two senators, and it is my belief that since um, the county is predominantly female and this district is predominantly female, it's time to have a woman to represent Durham again. The, the late, great Senator Jeannie Lucas was the first African-American woman to serve in the state Senate, and it has been 12 years since Durham has had a woman to represent them in the General Assembly. We also can make history. We have Renetta Austin running for House Unopposed. I'm running um, for State Senate. I'm 36 years old. If elected, I would actually be the youngest black woman in the General Assembly period. We actually have no black woman under 40 in the House or the Senate. So that was another reason why I wanted to run, not only because of uh, the demographic that I represent, but because of what this demographic is going through. We're struggling to um, keep up with um, the cost of living that's rising when wages are remaining stagnant. Black women ages 25 to 35 are actually a growing demographic of individuals that are living in poverty. So we deal with, you know, not having equal pay for equal work, domestic violence, sexual assault. So it's time that we have a representative that will legislate from that lived experience and really being able to connect to what um, what all people are going through, but in particularly a demographic that deserves representation because we're holding up our local communities, so we need to have a voice in our state capital.
Yeah, definitely. And it seems like we definitely need that here in North Carolina because we know that for a while there, it definitely, I mean, we have Roy Cooper, who is the Democratic governor, but he's definitely facing an uphill battle with some of the legislators, which are um, right now, as you alluded to, Republican controlled. And I was just wondering um, how you think we can do in terms of shifting that balance, whether you think this election will see a shift in either the House or the state Senate. And also, I was wondering what your own opinions are of, because you mentioned that you would be one of the uh, youngest ones that are there in office, and we know that there are some young people that are doing quite well on the national level. I'm actually a big fan. Mm -hmm. Not all my friends are, but I'm actually a big fan of AOC and the uh, young um, Middle Eastern lady that's out of the Midwest area So and uh, and others as well. So we know that there's definitely a move among uh, that age generation to get more politically involved. So I was just wondering what some of your Mm -hmm. thoughts were on that uh, on that line. Yes, I agree. I think we definitely need to bring um, more young uh, millennial women of color to the forefront because we we the things that we're going through need to be um, communicated. It wasn't until Lauren Underwood, 31-year-old um, black woman um, in Congress at the congressional level, she worked with um, Congresswoman Alma Adams, and it took black women to say, wait a minute, we need to have a committee to address the fact that black women are dying from childbirth at a higher rate. Um, Alma Adams has done amazing work with our HBCUs, so I think women of color in general, we bring a different lens to legislating. And in regards to the ability to work with Governor Cooper, depending on um, how the presidential race shakes out, I think that will impact our, the down-ballot races. And Durham will be just fine because we're very blue, but in some of these what you call a flippable district that's very mixed with Democrats and Republicans, Um, they will be impacted by the top of the ticket in that presidential race. But putting that to the side, we do have the potential to um, carry the Senate by one seat. So we do have – we actually have a better chance of taking the Senate than we do with the House. To give the governor that much-needed assistance to actually get some work done, like expanding Medicaid. Yeah, this is Joe Horowitz again. Uh, you mentioned AOC. AOC got a big running start from a group called Justice Democrats. There's another group mm-hmm. that I support called Movement Voter Project. These are groups that funnel mm-hmm. money to insurgent candidates on the ground in places where they feel like those uh, that, that help, the not just money but also organizing resources and skills, can really make mm-hmm. a difference. It certainly paid off um, for AOC's race and Ayanna mm-hmm. Presley and – uh, we uh, things like the Doug Jones victory over Roy Moore in Alabama. Groups like this mm-hmm. that are, are going outside the framework of the Democratic Party to go to the people who are progressive and who can be held accountable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really good strategy, and it's one of the places where I tend to put my charity work is into groups yeah. like this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a point well taken. I think that we need a new model. Um, I'm an individual that I think I kind of have a mix of both. I'm active enough in the community that um, community members definitely know who I am. They've definitely been very supportive, um, but have been active with the Democratic Party, but I'm the first to hold my party accountable. I have no issues saying that we need to do a better job and actually just did an event with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley a few weeks ago, and it was very well documented. She was not the establishment pick. And um, I have had challenges in my current race as far as, um, you know, individuals who thought, you know, I didn't wait my turn and just kind of put myself out there. And um, but it's because I knew I was the best candidate and the most qualified. But say all that to say, that's why we need those other individuals, those other organizations to support 
all candidates to make sure our government is more reflective of the individuals that are really doing the work on the ground instead of just, you know, candidates that maybe cherry-picked but not really represent their, their local community. So very inspired by the campaigns of um, the entire squad, but particularly Ayanna Presley because she was not the establishment pick but just did it. She was the first black woman on Boston City Council, um, first black woman to represent um, Massachusetts and, and Congress, period. And um, she could not have done that without um, the support of other organizations um, like the ones that you, you mentioned. And if any, anyone listening definitely need to watch that documentary on Netflix um, where AOC is one of the candidates. I think it's called Breaking the House or Breaking Down the House. Um, but it's really, really inspirational. I mean, she really started from zero and just with, you know, grit and, and, and will um, broke through that system. And um, very, very inspiring for, for young all people running for office, but particularly young women of color that may not be, um, kind of the, the, the party pick or the establishment pick, um, very inspirational to follow her story. And what do you tell folks, that, uh, Natalie, because uh, we have a lot of that here in this area where people go by whatever the uh, various packs pick and everything. So we do have a lot of that kind of, uh, as you call it, um, cherry picking of the candidates. So if, when you are not one of the candidates, I think you were endorsed by some of them, but when you're not one of the candidates yeah. or you don't get those kind of endorsements and everything, what do you say to folks that are that tell you don't, don't run because you don't have the experience or because you're too young or because you don't have the quote unquote endorsement of whatever the uh, groups are that are the end groups? Yeah, yeah, I definitely am not one to tell people to not run, but being that this is my second campaign, I'm very upfront about um, the personal sacrifice. I am uh, independently employed, and, you know, I have to move things around. I did a very public post about the fact that, you know, my father got ill. You know, life doesn't stop just because you're running for office. So I think it's definitely more difficult. You will need to really have your act together to have a really strong ground game. If you don't get support from those larger groups, you're going to need to do more canvassing. You're going to need to do more phone banking. Um, I'm running in half of Durham County, but an individual that's running countywide, let's say you're running for county commission, there are over 50 precincts. So if you don't have the support of any of those organizations, you will have to use your own networks to cover 50-plus precincts just with volunteers. So if you don't have the base of the support that can get that done for, for you, it is very difficult. As you said, I was fortunate I got the support of the People's Alliance, and it actually was a record-breaking meeting. Over 600 people um, attended that meeting, and I prevailed. I also was endorsed by the News and Observer as well as the Indie Week. So we still are working very hard. We don't take anything for granted, um, but we definitely are in a, a really, really good, good position going into tomorrow. It sounds like you're in a good position and everything. I've got to get to one other call as well that's going to talk about an event that they've got. I want both of you to stay on the line. But um, Shell did kind of like go out there on the line and on the limb and say who he was endorsing in the um, presidential election. I'll put you on the line. So is there anybody that you're really backing in terms of the five that are left since we've had three that have dropped out? Natalie? Oh, that's for me. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you yeah, said I something about Michelle. I, I am, yes, I am a full-on Elizabeth Warren surrogate, and um, I, I joined her team. I, I honestly was very supportive of um, Senator Kamala Harris as a woman of color 
um, wanted to support her, not only because she was a woman of color, but I just thought she was very qualified. Um, I thought she would do a really great job and be very effective. Um, so when she exited the race, I, you know, just kind of reevaluated the field. And I've been fortunate enough to actually meet Senator Warren on a number of occasions. Again, I am active with the Democratic Party. And from my own personal experience, just from what I've seen, the way that she interacts with people, um, her supporters are really, really on fire. And I was just blown away that I was at this national event. And of all the candidates that came before us, they were really, really excited about Senator Warren. I also find her to be very engaging as a result of her story. So back to I'm running because of my lived experience. I look forward to the senator talking more about her personal story. She had to leave school. You know, she didn't go directly from undergrad to law school. She had to, um, you know, take a break for a while to be um, a homemaker. She has a story of her parents um, being fearful that they were going to lose their home and couldn't pay their mortgage when she was young. So it's my belief that when you go through um, trials and tribulations in life, it will make you a more compassionate leader. And I think also her debate performance um, two debates ago shows that she has what it takes to stick up to Donald Trump. And um, definitely will say that for any folks that question her electability, if you vote for her, she's electable. Done. It's that simple. Um, I think when it comes to women, we have to work harder. But when it comes to this whole electability issue, when so many other developed nations have had women in top seats, um, I think that we, we just need to get over that and just get behind a candidate. Um, I will admit it does look like some other candidates are working to consolidate. <laughs> um, you know, we have had Amy Klobuchar and um, Pete Buttigieg to get out of the race. Amy Klobuchar actually was very strong. I think she peaked a little bit too late. Um, I think she took a hit early on in her campaign um, as a result of, um, you know, rumors and, and things that some folks were saying, but I think she was a very, very strong candidate. But um, I know that, that they both will have very bright futures. But was canvassing for um, Senator Warren and her team actually just last Sunday um, did that joint event with Ayanna Presley where we were pushing Senator Warren. And also I think we need to highlight the fact that um, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter has actually endorsed Senator Warren and theroot.com ranked all of the candidate plans for um, African-Americans. Senator Warren has her own agenda for black America and her plan ranked the highest. So I do believe of all candidates, I think she's sincere. I don't think she's pandering. I think that she will listen, um, but she also has the backbone needed to stick up to Donald Trump. Yeah, but I definitely agree with you on that. I definitely think she does. I want both of you to stay on the line. Um, Dean, can you get uh, Rashid on? I wanted to talk about the play that he's got going on, but I want both of you to stay on the line because we've got about another 18 minutes, and I definitely want to get back to some of the political stuff before we wind up the show. But um, Rashid, are you with me? I am, Mark. I am. How you doing? How you doing tonight? I'm doing good. We were just talking to Shell Horwitz. He was doing a lot of work with uh, – environmental company I mean entrepreneurship and business companies that are trying to do a lot of work with green um, and doing being more environmentally conscious even as they make money and of course we've got Natalie Murdoch who is running for state senator for Floyd McKissick's seat but um, you were going to give me a call because y'all have a play coming up on this coming uh, weekend so I wanted people to know a little bit about that place so if you tell people a little bit about his thoughts i would greatly appreciate that and if you want to chime in because i know rashid you've always got things to say about politics and social justice if you want to chime in about what we've already been talking i'm not going to stop you from doing that either mark i appreciate that dana mark i thank you for allowing me to uh 
speak to speak to the, your audience about his thoughts. Um, this is a play uh, that was written by a poet who um, the the poems are inspired by uh, a poet by the name of uh, Sean, Sean Kenan Gorham, and he's passed on. Um, but the playwrights are Dasana Hanu and Joseph uh, Church, the poet Churchwell, and um, it's a cast of, of four of us. This is um, I, I, I regard it as um, it's it's, uh, it's, um, it's 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 black magnificence um, as far as like uh, in in the context of love and uh, poetic verse. Um, it's really um, it's it's got a. Uh, a, a, a sultriness to it. It has um, passion, um, love. It speaks to um, you know falling in love, uh, the trials of the experience of being in relationship, and the question and the desire to reconcile, heal, and move forward. Um, the performance is going to be at the Haiti Heritage Center. This Friday and Saturday. Um, this Friday it's going to be um, showing at uh, eight o'clock, and then on Saturday it's going to be performed. It's going to be showing at seven thirty. Uh, we have a beautiful cast. We have um, local area uh, Raleigh Durham poet and MC Sean Harris. We have a uh, singer, songwriter, uh, performer Nyla Madlock. We have um, a, a, a new thespian to our um, to our entourage, if you will, a beautiful young sister uh, by the name of Bree Humphrey, and um, the four of us is, is so it's um, really like going to be like a kind of stripped down performance um, because we want to maintain the integrity of the poetry, and it's like it's it's a lot. It's it's like it's Black Shakespearean, so we are going to still have the scripts just because this is like really new and fresh, and we just kind of wanted to hit it while it's hot. This um, the poetry company is the Black Poetry Theater, and they are um, currently resident artists uh, based in Haiti Heritage Center. And again, uh, the two playwrights for the company are Dasana Hanu and Joseph uh, Church the Poet Churchwell. And this is will be my third play, my third performance with them. And I just really enjoyed it because it's original theater, it's black theater, it um it has that beautiful melanated resonance and it's it's something new. And I just strongly encourage anyone and everyone who um, is within earshot that if um you're not doing anything or even if you are and you can uh, move your schedule around, I would strongly encourage and ask that you come out and just support some um, some black art. It's going to be, uh, you know, bring your date. Um, it, whether you've been in a relationship for a while or, you know, this is your first, first date or you're single, come and be inspired and just be touched by the words and by the um, poetic expression and uh, just vibe with us and let's uh, support black art. Definitely appreciate you having that message for us, Rashid, and we'll definitely try to get some people to get there. You'll be glad to know that uh, there are definitely poetry connections even among our activists because Shale Horowitz, who is a longtime activist, like I said, been doing things for a number of years. He's in his uh, 60s and everything, but he actually met his wife at a poetry event 
in New York way back when, and they've been married for a number of years. Um, Shell, how many kids do y'all have? Is it one or is it two or is it? Uh, I don't know how many kids you have, but they, they actually met. We have met two, um, and you know, we we both left New York and moved to uh, rural Western New England, and now we've got one kid in Boston and one in New York. And uh, yeah, my wife and I met at a poetry reading in 1978. Became a couple in 1979. We've done lots and lots of political things together, lots and lots of writing things together, lots of traveling, and we got married in '83. And I like to say we're still on our honeymoon. Sounds beautiful. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> That's wonderful that y'all are still on the honeymoon. I can still say that y'all are on the, on the honeymoon. And uh, Natalie, I'm sure that you've actually come to events and you've gone to a number of events at Haiti. So you're actually always involved in a number of things that are going on in the community. And I'm sure that no matter what they are, the results of the election, if you have the time, you may decide to pop in to Haiti just to that particular event because I know that you are a supporter of our cultural arts center among other things, Absolutely. but you have definitely been involved in the community and are definitely a fan of our community and what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to see if we can get Natalie to come and check out the show. Uh, I'd be there if I live closer, but I'm about, to, I don't know, 800 miles, 1,000 miles away, so I'm going to have to skip it. <laughs> it's just a plane right away, Shell. You can jump on that plane anytime you feel like it. <laughs> but what advice would you give to um, Natalie Shell? Like you said, your wife was running for a campaign. So just out of curiosity, what advice would you give to those that might be interested in uh, being involved in the um, on this kind of scene and everything. Cause like I said, she's running for office. So what advice would you give to yeah. somebody like Natalie that is running for this office, running for state Senate? Like I said, she served on the soil and water commission has definitely been involved in politics for a number of years, but your wife has run. I don't know if you've ever run, but you've definitely helped with campaigns. So what I advice would you give? For, yeah. In, in the 1980s and nineties, I ran three times for public office. I also have managed other campaigns, done press for other campaigns. One of my great successes is that we won a city council campaign in Northampton against a very entrenched, very conservative incumbent, and we won it by seven votes. So every wow. vote counts. That's oh the first goodness. bit of, of advice I, I would tell you is do not discount. Go out there. Get get people registered, get people voting, mm-hmm. make it mm-hmm. clear what's in their interest. Don't just say vote for Natalie because she's female or no vote for Natalie because she's a person of color, but say vote for Natalie mm-hmm. because her experience on the Soil and Water Commission is going to be directly relevant to helping your life and helping mm-hmm. farmers keep their land and, you know, whatever arguments make sense down there. I don't know the local issues, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, mm-hmm. You can be your authentic self. Don't let anybody say you can't. But you can also mm-hmm. find ways to be your authentic self and find the, the, what we used to call the mom and apple pie issues, where you're going to mm-hmm. get a lot of buy-in. This is, this is what Bernie Sanders has done so successfully, is he's getting people who thought they hated the whole concept of socialism to say, hey, you know, he may be a socialist. Yes. He's speaking about what I need. And I'm speaking as a Warren supporter, but I still have tremendous respect for, yeah. for Bernie. Um, and I'm with if you. he is the nominee, I will totally vote for him and work for him. Yeah, um, here. I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm still... Yeah, I, I, we, were, Mark and I were talking at the beginning of the show about how this is very, very weird. The way, just before, in fact, for Klobuchar's case, her state is up tomorrow, and she drops out. Mm-hmm. Today, what's going on with that? It looks like it's. Mm-hmm. Trying to, mm-hmm. I have to say it. It looks like the fix is in to get Biden in there, and I will yes, vote for him if he's the nominee, but without any enthusiasm and without working for him. Um, and I, what yeah. I worry about is that the progressives, a lot of the progressives, will just stay home, and we'll have four more years of, of Voldemort. 
Yeah, we don't yes. need four more years I, yeah. of Baltimore. Very That's well very said. much for sure. <laughs> Um, just real quick, I do need to get Kayana real quick, and I've only got about six minutes to go, uh, about ten minutes to go. So I want both of you to stay on the line. But just real quickly, Natalie, am I correct in thinking? Because I told uh, Michelle this that we are trying to get um, environmentally um, safe buses, like more of the environmentally safe buses online for our uh, Durham bus system. It seems to me that I remember hearing that at some point or another. We are, we are. They cost, um, they are pretty expensive, but as far as their long-term, like, 5, 10, 20-year plan, we are trying to get more um, fuel-efficient, cleaner, um, natural gas. There's so many different types of bells and whistles that come out every year with our bus system, but that is a part of our of our long-term plan and our regional plan. So the same goes for Raleigh as well as Chapel Hill and Cary. That is true. Right, thought, you might want to look at what it might be like to find a bus with solar panels on the roof that would at least power things like yes. the air conditioning and heating. <laughs> Absolutely, to power up all that, you know, Wi-Fi and uh, laptop service you have, get some some solar panels. Absolutely, and yep. we're um, working on more solar panels at the the bus stops. Um, our county commission very underreported. Um, they just put in another million dollars just for bus stop improvement. So as we know, it's not just the bus service, but the um, experience that you have while you're waiting on the bus as well. Definitely. Yeah. And I, um, I want to, since you brought up, since we're talking about solar again, let me just remind people that you can get a free copy of my 995 ebook, Painless Green, by going to painlessgreenbook.com slash Earth Day and then putting straight talk mm. in the code. Okay. Okay, sounds great. It definitely will. Hopefully people will be doing that that are listening. Um, I've got Cayenne on real quickly. Cayenne is a filmmaker and a musician that has been involved in a number of issues. I wanted him to talk about what he's got coming up because he's got a film coming up that I know a number of people may be wanting to see, and hopefully we'll get him on at a more extensive interview later. But I did want to at least get him on for this time to talk a little bit about the movie that he's got coming up and the activities he's got coming up. Cayenne, are you there with me? Yeah, I'm still here, brother. How you doing? I'm doing good, Cayenne. Tell our folks we've got Natalie Murdoch um, on the line who's running for state senate, and we've got uh, Shell Horwitz, who is an activist doing a lot of work with uh, making sure that uh, our entrepreneurs know that they can be green and be very much environmentally conscious. And, of course, we had Rashid, who's involved with his thoughts, which is a play going on at Haiti. But we've got about uh, seven minutes or about ten minutes to go, so I did want folks to know about your show and uh, what you've got coming up. And I will definitely have you come back on to give even more detailed interview later on. But I did want to at least get an initial interview where folks can know what you've got coming up in the near future. Okay. Well, um, real quick, um, I appreciate you having me on the show, first of all, and all the great people that you have online, man. And um, what, what I got going on is uh, my first film that I, I made, and it's actually the first um, urban independently uh, distributed comedy drama that's uh, been made uh, in North Carolina. So, um It'll be released on 4-20, uh, uh, which is April of this year, at the AMC Theater over by Martin Luther King on 15501. So um pretty excited about that. And I um, actually filmed this uh, movie with uh, seven of my sons, so it's all independently owned and whatnot. So um, just trying to get everybody in the theaters and support it, uh, you know, uh, because it's like a, a real big venture for me. And like I said, it's the first movie that's released like this in uh, North Carolina, as well as my first uh, movie I wrote. And tell people just a little bit about what the movie is about and a little bit about the details of the movie. Well, um, I'm going to try to sum it up, man. I, I tell everybody I sometimes be sounding, feel like I'm sounding bored about it, boring about it. But, um, yeah, it's a movie basically uh, talking about peer pressures, um, of smoking weed and, and 
just uh, still being um, older, you still be uh, going through certain things that you have to deal with yourself as far as being an entrepreneur or whatnot. So um, I did it in a comedic way to hopefully uh, have people receive it and um, be able to see the lessons in it, you know, the hidden lessons in it with uh, letting people know that, you know, you still have to deal with society pressures no matter how old you get, you know. That's very true, and I know that you've been involved in, like I said, the music industry for a number of years. You're well-known here in the reggae circuit as well as now doing the filmmaking, and also I believe you've done DJing. As a matter of fact, I know you've done radio DJing, so you've done a number of things here in the community, so people may be familiar with you as being definitely one of the entrepreneurs here, and you're keeping it in the family because, uh, as you said, you've got both your sons and your daughters involved in different aspects of the program. Right, right, right. So, you know, I just want people to know that um, when you uh, come together with um, yourself, first of all, everything starts with yourself, as well as uh, pulling your sons and your daughters together, you can be able to uh, build something positive so that not only your community can see, but the world community can see. So um, I'm going to be taking the movie to Honolulu, Canada, Australia, Africa, and um, a lot of other places um, in the States. So, like I said, I'm very excited about it, and uh Hope y'all come out and see it. It's called the Herb Train. You know, you can be able to look at theherbtrain.com or you can um, check out YouTube and be able to see the trailer. Sounds great. And we'll have to find a way to get it up to Massachusetts. That's where Shell's at. The rest of everybody is here in this yeah. other line is in Durham. But we'll have to find a way to get it up to Massachusetts and New Jersey. My partner in crime, Dean, is in New Jersey. Shell is up there in Massachusetts. And uh, so we'll have to get it up there. Um, Shell, um, I've been thinking about this all the time. But I just want to say, did we meet first through LinkedIn or did we meet through Shrek, through the uh, Facebook Live? Because I met meet so many people so many different ways. I forget where we first met at. I believe we met uh, on LinkedIn. And actually, uh, I'm hoping you'll send me a Facebook friend request because there are too many people with your name for me to do it the other way around. Yeah, and I probably have too many pages, but I will definitely do that. I'll send you the LinkedIn, and I will send you the other one as well. As we get ready to yeah, wind well, down we the are show. Yeah, we on LinkedIn. That's, that's, um, and uh, you you'd said you'd been to my website, goingbeyondsustainability.com, and, um, and you were always looking around for good guests, so I'm always happy to oblige. I'm a bit of a media slut. Nothing wrong with that at all, and nothing wrong with letting folks know how to get the word out, and definitely you have a very important message that more people need to hear, and you definitely gave some good advice to Natalie and everything. And as we wind down the show, I think we've got about three minutes to go, but I want all the guests, including my good friend Dean, our co-host, but as we wind down, and I guess I'll uh, – yeah, we'll start off with ladies first. So um, to, as we wind down, what um, – advice would you give to others that are out there that might be interested in just uh, life advice as well as political advice in your case? But I think what I'm really looking for is just life advice. So any life advice that you have that you want to share as a young lady that is running for political office but has been involved in a number of things here in the uh, Triangle area, what advice would you give to people? And um, real quickly, the other question I was going to ask you real quickly is, was anybody else in your family involved in politics, Natalie? I don't know. I know you said you ran one time, but I'm not sure if anybody else in your family ever ran. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I've always thought my father should have run for office, and it's funny that you asked me that question. I think something that I don't share with a lot of individuals is I truly believe that I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, and I'm living out dreams that they couldn't even conceive or see for themselves. Um, I think I'm living out um, things that they should have done. I do believe that. So my grandmother started a cafeteria strike. Um, they went from making 90 cents an hour to $3 an hour without the support of a, of a union. 
my aunts marched with the Ooh. Woolworth Four. So a lot of my family members were very active as far as civil rights. You know, my father um, in undergrad, they took over the administration building. You know, that's when, uh, you know, civil rights was, was really, really heating up and the Black Panthers was getting started. So it's always been in my blood, but they never ran for office. So um, I was the one that, that took that plunge. So I think the advice that I would give is, you are enough. I think Michelle um, was saying, be your authentic self. I think particularly when it comes to women, we think, like, for example, I'm single and don't have children, but guess what? 40% of women in my district have never been married before. So you can't say, well, I don't have the picture-perfect life or the picture-perfect image. You need to run as you are. Everyone deserves to be represented. So I think the advice that I would give is um, to be true to who you are because, Voters can feel that, and I think the traction that I've received is because people believe in me and my authenticity, and um, they like that I'm that I'm who I, that I'm who I am. You know that I'm I'm humble, willing to talk with anyone, work with anyone, and transit. It was nothing to see me hang out at Durham Station just to talk with transit riders about their experience. The same with our bus operators. Even though I was admin and managing a department and a multi-million dollar budget, I would still go to the maintenance department. I would still talk to our, to our bus operators. So um, that's just who I've always been and just encourage people to, um, to be true to, to who they are and to not play it safe. I uh, knew that what I'm doing was not easy, but I'm a very, very serious candidate for state senate. Moved to Durham not knowing a soul not knowing anyone. So just keep your eye to the ground and just work hard. Definitely great advice. Shell, what advice would you give to people uh, real quickly? And as we wind down, uh, they usually give us about five minutes of buffer zone. So what advice would you give to people? Well, I would say don't be afraid to follow your dream. Find ways to anchor that dream in practicality. I, I feel like one of the few regrets that I have in my life is that I waited too long to braid together these two pieces of the activist and the marketer. I should have done it mm. right from the beginning. And um, it, it's been very exciting to be talking about things that people think are really weird and out there, and then 10 years later they're mainstream. And that's happened to me a lot. Um, they say pioneers are the ones who get arrows in their backs, but actually I think pioneers are the ones often who get to – be the first one to the top of the mountain and look at that incredible view. So, yeah, never let anybody tell you you can't. Never let anybody tell you that one person can't make a difference. Um, mm -hmm. Just think about a seamstress named Rosa Parks, an electrician named Lech Walesa, a housewife named Lois Gibbs, a nun named Mother Teresa. These are people who made enormous differences, and they did it by working with others, but they did it because they were committed and they were not willing to, to take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Rashid, any advice that you've got for folks as they're listening and uh, just the general advice in general, uh, not necessarily about the play, but just life advice? Um, I just like to echo what everyone else has said. Um, give yourself permission to pursue your passions and your purpose. Um, that's what it is that I'm doing. I'm, I'm, I'm on that journey. Um, I'm pursuing my master's in social work, and in conjunction, I'm uh, doing theater. Both of them meet uh, particular aspects of, of who I am, and I want to find a way to bridge the two. Um, and, let's all, and when we all give ourselves permission to live our purpose and our passion, then we are freed up 
and as a society, we're just more healthier and happier. And let's all be encouraged, and let's give ourselves space and room to um, to bring our contributions to the collective table and see how we can create a, a better, brighter, more beautiful future. And um, also, you know, create space for the children, because all of this is about modeling and being an example of something uh, greater and more beautiful, so the children can be uh, fulfilled and happy and live and, and be encouraged to live their purpose as well. No doubt. Cayenne, you've got children. What is some of your advice and everything, just in general? I mean, well, basically everybody says um, the foundation of what we all um, do in different areas. So what I could basically say is uh, allow yourself to let your ancestors and the most high speak through your creativities because a lot of people have creativities and gifts and scared to use them. Um, one thing my grandmother said before she passed was, you know, if you don't use your gifts, you know, the most high take them from you. So, um, don't be afraid to use your gifts and speak and and teach others, you know, not only locally but globally because you have a bigger voice through music, through arts, and um, other forms. Because, I mean, that's basically where all of it is, uh, whether we use it in the political aspect, whether we use it in uh, the classroom. So, you know, just don't be afraid to use your creativity and let the ancestors and your most are blessed, you know. Definitely. Dean, what you got to say is we wind down the show and everything. So what you got to say, Dean, and then we'll tell you what we got next week as well. But uh, what do you want to say to the folks that are listening about what's going on? Well, you know what? It's a very interesting conversation, man, that we had tonight. And we thank all of our guests for being with us. Um, just remember, y'all, love on the kids, man, because they imitate what they see. And if we don't show them that love, they ain't going to be able to show that love to the next generation long after we're gone. But Straight Talk with Dana Mark every Monday night, 7 p.m., except on holidays when you catch that replay. Tomorrow night or tomorrow afternoon, make sure you catch the replay on the Skyhawk Radio Network, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And if you happen to miss that, we got a whole bunch of replays for you on Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, CastBox, and right here on Blog Talk Radio. Like I always say, when it's when you wake up in the morning and you walk outside your front door, showtime in the world is your stage. Just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. With that being said, as a six-man Dean Geronimo, I'm out. We'll see y'all in seven days. And in seven days, just to let folks know, uh, well, two things. One, definitely pay attention to what's going on around you in the world. As you know I'm a big fan of paying attention not just to the people around you, but also the environment and the other things that are happening in Mother Nature around you. That's kind of what Shell has been talking about in his presentation and everything. So we do need to pay attention to Mother Nature and take care of Mother Nature on a regular basis. And as a matter of fact, next week we're going to have Corey Cohen on the show. He's going to be talking about his work with dogs. That's right, the real dogs that are out there, the animal, the dog, and their psychology. He's an animal behavior and relationship expert, and he's got a book called, uh, well, a program called Path of Friendship, where he looks at ways that we can actually um, have a good relationship with our pets, our dogs particularly. I think that he also deals a little bit with cats, even though he's definitely a dog lover, but, you know, some of us are more into other breeds of animals. My dad's into turtles. I actually like both cats and dogs. 
But uh, he's going to talk about animal behavior, and he'll be one of our guests. We'll have a number of other guests as well next week. We try to have a multitude of guests, but that's the one that is already on the schedule. But I've got some others that may be joining as well. So definitely tune in next week, next uh, Monday evening, and we'll have some more great conversations. I do want to thank all my guests that were on this particular evening. And by the way, if you didn't get out and do like I did and get that early voting, you do have time to vote tomorrow. There are several states that are voting as part of Super Tuesday. I'm sure Natalie would love to get your support as part of her campaign. So definitely get out there and get your vote because this is the chance for you to make your voice heard. It might be Natalie that you're back in. It might be one of the presidential candidates that you're back in. But as I have said on this show a number of times, we need to be concerned about our local people in addition to our national and our state people. It is oftentimes the local people that make the decisions that impact us the most. So get out there. If you haven't done your research, do some research and do get out there and vote. Voting is a very important thing that we do as part of society. So get out there and get your vote on, and we'll see you next Monday night, like Dean said.